Welcome. Thank you for listening to Spiritual Living with author and teacher Francois Feinberg. May the message you're about to hear earnestly touch your heart and may it encourage you in your ongoing love of God the Father, your enjoyment of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your fellowship in both the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ. As I continue to grow in my own relationship with God and as I mature and develop and as He prunes me and regulates me, I've come to a stage where I just really enjoy God's company. And in particular, I enjoy just the heart of my Father. I trust Him. If God doesn't verbally speak to me, or some clear path is revealed to me, or God doesn't wow me with some sign or wonder or a miracle or some prophecy or some breakthrough. I've had all of that. I still have that. But personally, even in the absence of those things many, many, many a time, I've come to that place where I just enjoy my Father. I'm at rest. I'm relaxed, actually, if I could be honest, with just the fatherly care of God towards me. I have this unique opportunity granted to me by God to minister very regularly to the sons and daughters of God, not only here in North America, but even around the world. And I've noticed that so many of them are not relaxed in the caring fatherly heart of God. It's almost as though God still needs to prove himself to them and he needs to wow them instead of them just being at ease that their father, our father, will take care of them. And I have this wonderful opportunity to often challenge people to come into just a posture of trust, a posture of faith, a posture of love before God, and just see to it that you enjoy Him. Worship Him, love Him, speak kindly to Him, bless Him, and just let Him be the Father that He is. I did not personally grow up with a Father that taught me how to interact with Him, As a child, I was actually afraid of my stepfather. Many of you may not know the story of my upbringing, but my stepfather just despised me to the uttermost, and I lived in perpetual fear that he would hurt me. Um, He spanked me a lot, and when I was a teenager, he actually hit me with his fist. I do have a vivid memory of one day where he actually knocked me out. And when I came to, he was about to engage me again. And I ran, jumped over a wall uh, in our backyard, a brick wall that's about eight feet high at that time. And I just, I, I scaled that wall and the adrenaline caused me to rip a brick out of the top of that wall in our backyard. And I hurled it at him because I feared for my life. I ran to my uncle and they sheltered me for a couple of days before I sheepishly was brought home and my uncle and aunt helped facilitate some restoration. Um, But I never quite 
felt at ease, trusting, loving. And so when I came to faith in Christ prior to my 17th birthday, um, I had to start a brand new journey with this relational thing with God regarding his fatherliness and me being a son. And I see this among many, many, many people that I get the opportunity to minister to. Beloved, I'm asking you, is God just this sovereign, almighty, all-powerful figure? Or in addition to that, is he also a loving father? I want to address that aspect of God's nature because that was an enormous part of God's nature that the Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord, came to reveal. Matthew 6. We're in the Sermon on the Mount, as it's generically called. And in this particular sermon, um, Jesus also teaches his disciples how to pray. And I don't want to go through the entire prayer, this perfect Jesus prayer, if you will. I just want to highlight one little thing for you. If you come here to uh, verse 9, Jesus says, When you pray, do it in the following way. In other words, this is it. If you go to Luke 11, you'll see that the disciples saw the Lord praying. And upon finishing, they approached Him and they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? And the Lord said then there in Luke 11, if you pray, pray the following way. That little clause is not included in Matthew's uh, version of events. So Matthew just starts out by teaching us this particular prayer. So I want to call it the Jesus prayer. We might even call it the perfect prayer. Uh, you and I generically know it just as the our father, so to speak. But I want you to notice verse 9. When you pray, do it the following way. Our Father, who is in the heavens, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Give us today our daily bread, forgive us our trespasses, forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, etc., etc. I just want you to notice that opening phrase, Our Father. Our Father. It's not just my Father. It's our Father. What the Lord Jesus does here is He makes God, in a way, accessible to all of us. God is not just for the pious priest. God is not just for the scholar. 
God is not just for the Pharisee that is very legalistic and God is, is our Father. God is not for the Jew only. God is also the Father of the Gentile. God is not just for the man, my Father. God is also for the woman. He's our Father. God is not just for the older sage. He's also for the naive, young, innocent, fresh out of the shoots, young one. He's our Father. And in that little term right there, um, in a way, is the changing of the entire, you might say, economy of God. That little phrase, our Father. In the Old Testament, under the law, God was not really addressed as our Father. God was addressed as Elohim and Yahweh, as, as God. God was addressed as the Almighty. We know that throughout the Old Testament times, even the name of God, Yahweh, was taken away. And so God was just referred to generically as the name. Praise to the name. And God began to be, in a way, viewed as impersonable and unrelatable. And in this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray, it's as though He, he brings it back to God's original intention, is that man is a child, God is a father, and that relational interaction of father and son, or let's say father and child, it's as though Jesus is saying, hey, if you pray, and what is prayer? Prayer is just to connect with God. Prayer is just to have communion with God. We might say to conversate with God, to interact with God. And the, and the Lord is saying, hey, when you interact with God, start from the very premise that He's an Abba, He's a Father, He's a Daddy, and you are just a kid. Most of us, when we pray, we come maybe as a kind of a lawyer to God and we interrogate God. We cross-examine God. We, um, we seek answers. We demand explanation. And it's almost as though Jesus say, hey, when you really want to interact with God in the kingdom way, this new kingdom that I'm setting up, this new economy of God, this, this age of the Spirit, this age of grace, this age of life, if you really really want to sort of fellowship with God, then He's more than just Almighty. He's more than powerful. He's more than just a Google in the sky to give you information. He's more than just sort of somebody that you interrogate. He's your Father. He is Abba. It's as though... The Lord is inviting us into a tender interaction with the Father. A, an interaction with God that is one of meekness, one of humility. When you say, our Father, it's as though you take the posture of a kid. You take the posture of simplicity. And you, you derobe yourself of pride and you take the mantle off of superiority 
It's as though when you say, our Father, it's as though you recognize who is Lord, who is God, you recognize who's the provider, you recognize who's the protector, and, and there's just this, for me, there's this tenderness in this phrase, our Father. And that's what I want to minister to you today. He's our dad. He's our Abba. I want to start by saying this to you. In your younger years with God, you will probably seek to fellowship with God by way of getting information from Him. God, when will I marry? God, what school do you need me to go to? God, I know you're powerful. Keep the storm at bay. God, fill my bank account. Much of your interaction in your early years with God will be to get details from Him, explanation from Him. But just watch, and you'll see this happens to all the men and women of God who walk with God decade after decade. You'll see that the older you get in God, the less almost you interrogate Him because you transition to trust. And you'll see that your best and probably your worst prayer life is just simply coming before God and saying, Oh, Lord. Oh, Father. When you're young, you pray with a lot of words. <laughs> you pray with a lot of Scripture verses. And you'll just see that as you walk with God and you grow more and more intimate with God, now, I don't have a Bible verse for this, I promise. It's just, it's one of those things that we experience. And you'll see by the time you get to my age and even older, you'll see many men, we, we go to them, we say, teach us to pray. And they're like, I, I can just say his name. And that's about it. And I think in this prayer, notice how short this prayer is. And of course, a lot of folk have dissected the prayer this God dimension, this me dimension, this relational dimension, and then the satanic dimension. And it addresses, this prayer addresses really every dimension in the universe. God, me, relations, and the satanic. So you can dissect it, and when you pray, make sure you hit every little <laughs> compartment. Uh, God, your name is holy. We want your will. Uh, give me some bread today. God, take care of me today. Oh, Lord, help me with relationships. Forgive. Lord, Teach me and Satan, God bind them. <laughs> then you've pretty much, you, you, you've crossed it all. How do you say you've dotted the uh, I's, you've crossed the T's. Good prayer. But you'll see, even the older you will get in God, and you begin to enjoy just the Abba nature of God, and He's proven Himself to you over and over again, and He's come through for you over and over again, and just... You, there's this trust that has developed within you. You'll see your prayers become shorter and shorter. Your times with God is longer. But you, you say way less than you ever said before. It's only in our initial years that you're so nervous. You've got to you know, make sure you connect every little thing. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Shandai. Make sure you walk around your room. Throw some oil. I mean, I was a nervous wreck in my early years before God. Now, I just sit on my porch, oh God, oh Father, and an hour later, I've still not said a thing except Father. 
And I think that is what the Lord is after here. If you look around this prayer at the foregoing verses and whatnot, the Lord is really impressing upon us this idea of going into the secret place, this idea of not having too many vain repetitions, too many formulas with God. It's almost as though Judaism was so complex. Spirituality was so complex and its tentacles went into so many rabbit trails that it's as though when they ask him to pray, obviously they thought, man, he's going to teach us more rabbit trails in the prayer life. And certainly, you know, he performs all these signs and wonders and he has all these amazing teachings. So certainly he's got some handle on prayer. We got a handle, got to get a handle on. And this is the most simple prayer. It starts off so simple. Our daddy. And I'm sure folk were listening to this and they're like, uh, can you reduce this up a little bit? Can we spice this up a little bit, Jesus? What do you mean just our father? And it's as though he makes it so simple. And it's as though he brings it back to what it's really all about. You're my dad. And I'm secure in you. I wonder if there is this Abba, Daddy, Father ache within you towards God. If you come to Luke chapter 18, there's an amazing contrast in this whole issue of prayer that Luke uh, narrates for us so beautifully. Come to Luke chapter 18 and look at verse 9 and following. So Jesus tells this parable to a few uh, who are with him. And it says here that they were those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And as a result, they despised the rest. He's talking here again to religious people, to self-righteous people, to folk who have a formula and they've got some packaged spirituality. And in essence here, they trusted in themselves. They have figured it out. And as a result, they would, in a comparative way, condemn those who don't have it all together the way they do. And from that, he explains a little bit of the prayer life of some people. And he goes into this little story he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. That pray there is they are going to approach God. Two people are entering into dialogue with God, so to speak. 
They are coming to fellowship with God. And you're going to see the one man here is going to approach God in a very complex way and in a way trusting in his own self. And you're going to see the other man how he approaches God in utmost simplicity and in humility. And it's as though Jesus wants to get this lesson across. When you interact with God, it's almost as though simplicity is better. Coming emptied with no formula, no agenda, maybe just as simple as our Father. It's as though He wants to bring that truth across to a people group who have spirituality figured out, have put a big a bookend on both sides, and, and this is the only way that they know to fellowship with God. So, here it is. The one man is a Pharisee, and the other man is a tax collector. In a way, the Pharisee uh, is this saint over here. We might even say this one who is devoted to God. And the other guy is this guy who's just a, we might say, a sinner. This tax collector. So it says in verse 11, I want you to notice this in your Bible. The Pharisee stood... And he prayed these things to himself. Do you all notice that? It's as though he had fellowship, not with God really. He had fellowship with his own self. So when he came to God, that's the temple, he did not really have an intention to actually enter into fellowship with God. He was basically having a, we might say, a quiet time, a, a little prayer time for his own purposes. It was about him. So in a way, he's praying to himself. If you skip down a little bit to verse 13, you'll see that there's this tax collector. He's standing at a distance because he's ashamed to even come close to the temple of God. You, you might be saying he's standing there at the back corner of the temple complex, and uh, he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. There's the key word there, heaven. It's as though the sinner was intentional towards heaven. The saint here, the Pharisee, the, the spiritual man, you might say, this religious man, his intention was for himself. So you can see here that the tax collector, that is the sinner, is coming to the temple complex to somehow interact with God in the heavens. And that's exactly what the Lord would say in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in the heavens. This so-called saint of a Pharisee, he is really all about himself. Go back to verse 11. He prayed to himself. And then it says, God, I thank you. I don't want to read too much into the text. But he prayed with himself and then he addressed himself, God. He's an idolater. He's an idol worshiper. He's a self-worshipper. He did not have interaction with God. 
he had interaction with self in the name of God, but his attention was really towards just his own self. Very complex prayer life here. It had really nothing to do with God. It had to do with me. So, notice how the Lord tells the story. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like the rest of men. So he compares himself and he sizes himself up against others. And in a way, he thanks God, but he's actually boasting how different he is from other men. Can you see that his so-called interaction with God had really nothing to do with God. It had to do with his position, his stance compared to others. So his interaction with God was really about his own holiness and his own achievement. So he says, I thank you that I'm not like the rest, those extortioners, those cheats, the unjust, the adulterers, and even like this tax collector. So obviously he was standing in the temple looking around. Oh, he spots a tax collector way there at the back of the temple compound and he's looking around. He's not looking to, he has no fellowship really with God. He's in competition. He's comparing himself to that man standing there at the edge. So what he's really doing is he trusts in himself and he... Uh, reiterates all his trophies to God. And he has all these badges on him. I'm not like this. I'm not like that. I've arrived in this. I've arrived in that. So really, this is what prayer is. It's a merit system. It's a formula of works. Very complicated here. Then he goes into verse 12. And he says, I fast twice a week. You know, every Sabbath week I fast I give a tenth of all that I possess. And in a way, he is fellowshipping around a law code in the Torah. The Torah being the Old Testament law code. So notice a little bit how complex this man's prayer life is. It's got really nothing to do with the Father, with God. He trusts in himself. He's bragging about all his trophies. And he uh, upholds the Torah. And in a way, if, uh, if I can do this tongue-in-cheek, in a way, he's basically saying, Ta-da! Here I am. Me, meet I. <laughs> and this is his prayer life. It's all about him. And in context there, he trusts in himself. He brags about his trophies and he uh, upholds the Torah. Yeah, it's all about me. Now the sinner, on the other hand, you get this idea that he's not trusting in himself. He says actually, it says here that he was beating on his breast. And this man is actually saying, God... He prayed to the heavens, to God. His fellowship was with God. 
And in a way he says, God, I am merciful. Have mercy on me. Uh, let there be a sacrifice for a sinner like me. And I want to tell you, there's something tender in this man. And instead of this man saying, ta-da! In a way, he's saying, Abba. And that's the nail I want to drive home to with you this morning. Most of our interaction with God is we need God to do things. Lord, help me keep this law. Lord, help me arrive at this trophy. Lord, would you do A, B, and C so there is a ta-da moment in my life? Magically make me, you know, have an apartment or this girlfriend or just do a ta-da. So we seemingly approach God, but it's really all about me. It's really all about me. And even in the Lord's Prayer, there is a place for us to make all our requests known to God. To pray and to intercede and say, God, give me bread today. That is, take care of me today, Father. The Lord makes provision for that, absolutely. But this man's fellowship with God was entirely around just himself. In a way, God was to serve this man. So instead of saying, our Father, it was more, oh me. Oh my, you, this God in heaven, is for me. And I need you to do a ta-da in many various ways. And in the Lord's Prayer, there is really a little bit of a change. Of course God wants to do a ta-da in my life. And of course God wants you to grow and keep certain, let's say, principles and, and walk out certain laws, of course. God wants you to arrive at certain fruit and characteristics. But it's as though Jesus is just saying, don't come to God with a ta-da. Come with just a Abba. Our Abba. And just with that, put your trust in God. Not on the Torah. And be tender towards God. It's as though the Lord is just inviting us absolutely into a tenderness. And then he would go on in Matthew 6. He says, don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. You don't have to worry about what you're going to wear. Because you're saying really, my dad. And by saying my Abba, my dad, it's like you're putting all of the pressure on God. He's the one that's got to take care of you. He's the one that's got to lead you and shepherd you. And when you say, my Abba, our Father, our Daddy, it's as though that's already just a statement of trust. That's why the Lord then would say, don't worry. Don't be anxious. God's got you. He's going to take care of you. So instead of just fellowshipping to get that da-da, is there a place in God where we can just come to God and say, Dad, That's what the Lord is wanting to introduce us to. In the Old Testament, we were very cold before God. 
My interaction with God was transactional. Now the interaction is tender. This Abba, there is some subtle tenderness going on here. And it's as though that's what the kingdom children are all about. Of course, God's going to work the Tada, but not at the expense of Abba. chapter 4. You know this is the story of the woman at the well. It's a fantastic narrative of Jesus going out of his way to go meet this particular woman. This woman enters into an argument with him as to where worship should take place. Where do we worship God? What is the law regarding the worship of God? Do we worship God here in Samaria on Mount Gerizim? Or do we worship God in Jerusalem? So she's trying to, to grapple with what's the best law, the best place, the most strategic formula to interact with God. And I want you to uh, come here to uh, verse 21. Jesus speaks to this woman. He says, believe me that the hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know for salvation is of the Jews. Now look at verse 23. But an hour is coming. And actually that hour is now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truthfulness. Now look at that last clause of verse 23. He says, For the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in this way. It's as though He had enough people worshiping Him in a legalistic way. It's as though He had enough people offering sacrifices. He had enough people dressing up a certain way. Enough people eating a certain way. Enough people resting a certain way. But it's as though in that statement you get a sense that God is still not satisfied. God is still not quite getting the worship that He wants. And I tell you, the Jews worship God with trumpet, with song, with dance, with sacrifice, with offering. And God still, in a way, is not quite satisfied. He is still seeking those who will worship Him in a little bit of a different kind of a spirit. And I want to submit to you that the, the, the worship God wants from us is that of a child saying, Dad, Abba. A child saying it authentically, genuinely, trustingly and tenderly. It's as though at that moment, when we don't go to a temple anymore, we don't slaughter some animal anymore, it's just when we can just be kids and say, you're my Abba, you're my dad. It's like God is satisfied in that moment. When you read there in John 4, it's as though everything that was the worship of God up until that time, 
the priesthood, the candles, the bread, the, the blowing of the shofar, the new moon, the festival. It's as though God is like, oh, I'm still not interacting with you the way that I really want to. And so I'm seeking, I'm seeking. And what is he seeking? In a way, authenticity. Just me being raw and real and honest and perhaps even childlike saying, Abba. I want to tell you the older you grow in God, the less you're going to have a vocabulary in prayer, the less you're going to have all these little seven steps in prayer. The, it's like you're just coming to God like, oh God, oh Lord. And it's the spirituality of being. And it's the highest and deepest level of spirituality you can arrive at, if we can call it that. It's just to say, Dad, here I am, here you are. <sighs> I want to tell you, that is the highest and deepest dimension of interaction you and I can go to in God, is to be at rest in God. In spirit, at ease, tender, meek, mild, honest, raw, real. Paul writes this phenomenal account of how the work of Jesus of Nazareth applies to you and I's life. In chapter 8, he capitalizes tremendously on the work of the Holy Spirit, how the Spirit will substantiate all of this redemptive work of Jesus into you and I's life. And in verse 14, he says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Then he says, by the way, you've not received the spirit of slavery or of bondage that brings you into fear again. Like in the new covenant, in this dispensation of grace, God did not give you another law code and another spirit of fear and more bondage so that you're afraid of God. In this new covenant, there is a release from fear. People should be running to God. People should be excited to be with God. It should be no effort, no checklist. There is no fear. He starts off this chapter, there's no condemnation. Because the blood of Jesus has, has cleared that. You're now in the spirit, you're in life, you're in this new covenant and... You don't have to fear God. I marvel at the amount of people we have to convince to love God still. We go to meetings, we go to services, we have Bibles, we read, we study. But basically, we're just afraid of God. You're still in the old dispensation of the Torah, of the law, of achievement. So he says, no, 
You did not receive that kind of a spirit. You received the spirit of sonship. Some of your Bibles may say you received the spirit of adoption. The actual translation is you received the spirit that places you in the position of a son. That's the actual Greek, is to be placed in the position of a son. And it intonates adoption. When an outsider was brought into the family and put in the position of a son, that was called adoption. And it's that term that Paul is using here. You did not receive the spirit to be afraid of God again. You received the spirit that puts you in the position of a son. That does not put you in the position of a negotiator. Amen. Amen. An interrogator. It doesn't put you in the position of a, a boss and a dictator. You're, you're in the position before God of a son. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Ladies, sorry to say, before God the Father, you know you're a son, right? Amen. Oh, glory. Amen. You know that before Jesus Christ, you're a woman, right? Before God the Father, the Spirit brought you to Him and put you in the position of a son. That is, what does the son do? You just say, Dad, Abba. You, you look to the Father. Before Christ, we're in the position of a woman, and before the Holy Spirit, we're in the position of a temple. But that's another lesson for another day. The three relational interactions with the triune God. Before Father, it is a child and son relationship. Before Christ, it's a husband and spouse relationship. Before the Holy Spirit, you're a kind of a, a tent, a, a temple, a kind of a building that is to be filled. And if you can capitalize on those three interactions, your walk with God will never fall flat. But okay, look here back at chapter 8, verse 15. You're not supposed to fear God again. You've received the spirit of sonship by which we cry, Abba, Father. When was the last time you were in the spirit, in the position of a son before God, and you just said, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic. Um, it's a, uh, you know, Babylonian, Chaldean sort of language that developed, that Jesus spoke Aramaic. And uh, Father there, uh, Paul includes the Greek. So it's, it's as though he includes the Hebrew and he includes the Greek. And when was the last time we were just before God and said, God, Father, Daddy. See, most of us come before God and we rather would say, Why? When? How? And look what the Holy Spirit does. He causes within you to simply say, Dad. That's what the, 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 the Aramaic means. Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. You have to check with your prayer life. Is the Spirit really in you? Because if He's in you, you will spontaneously just say, Dad, Dad, Father, Abba. And all these interrogatory interactions with God where we say, Why? And when? And how? And now? All those things dissipate in this trust relationship. You're my father. Amen. 
So Paul is writing into that. Of course, he reiterates it there in the book of um, Galatians. The spirit in us cry, Abba, Father. And again, you'll see that the more you mature with God, the less you interrogate God, and just the more you will trust Him. And you trust Him with the spirit that's truthfully saying, Oh, my Father. John's Gospel. I call the Gospel of the Father because in this Gospel, Jesus just about in every sentence, just about, speaks regarding His Father. And He demonstrated for us what it's like to live and interact with God as Father. So I want to show you a couple of things regarding this father nature of God throughout the entire Bible. If you look up here on the screen, um, a few stats, if you will. In the entire Old Testament, the word father is mentioned a whopping 17 times. Okay, hello. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And... 17 times only is God referenced in this paternal kind of uh, interaction. Most of the time, God is referenced in His Creator, powerful interaction, and in His covenant name interaction, that is Yahweh, yod heh vav -Hey. In Matthew's Gospel, this... Father term is used 24 times. So in one gospel already, Matthew outdoes the entire Old Testament. In Mark's gospel, Father is mentioned three times. You can tell Mark is going to emphasize other things in the Lord's ministry. Luke mentions this fatherliness of God seven times. So not a lot. But here's John's gospel. One day, long, long ago, I just read through John's gospel. I have a habit, actually. I do it to this day. I read three New Testament books. I just read it. I don't study it. I just read it. Then I read one Old Testament book. Then I read three new, very randomly, one old. And one day, I landed on John's gospel, some 20 years ago. And so I just decided I'm going to read it in one sitting. And all of a sudden, from the pages popped this fatherly thing. And I began to almost see it in every sentence. So I decided, oh, let me grab a pencil. And I began to notice direct references to God as Father and indirect references. That is, He and God. But Jesus is speaking about, obviously, the Father. So I began to sort of take note of it, and according to my studies, it may be a little different in each Bible, but there are 79 references to God as Father, just Father alone in John's Gospel. Twelve times in John's letters, 
Y'all, that's amazing. It's as though John is really wanting you to capture this aspect of God. I thought it was quite interesting. The rest of the entire New Testament has only 24 references to God as Father. I dug a little bit deeper and I discovered that, yeah, there's 166 references altogether in the entire Bible of Father. 91 of those are in John's Gospel and Letters. So obviously that disciple John picked up on this aspect of Jesus and this father-child relationship that Jesus was the son of his father God. And somehow that boy, John the disciple, picked up on this. And when he would write his gospel, he would really capitalize on this. So 91 references in John's gospel and letters compared to 75 in the remainder of the entire Bible. That's why I very confidently say John's gospel is really the good news of the Father. Amen? Okay, got a couple more for you. So in John's gospel, as I counted it in my particular uh, translation, there's some 878 verses. In 447 of those verses... Jesus is actually speaking. We might call them red letter verses, right? And 160 of those 447 uh, verses are references to His Father, where He's not speaking just about this or about that, but He's speaking about His Father. So you can even tell in the speaking of Jesus, about a third or more, He was talking about His dad. You can tell where Jesus is uh, attention was, where his affection was, um, where his inspiration came from. Jesus was yoked to his Abba. No wonder when they say to him then, teach us how to pray. He didn't bind the prince of Persia. He didn't say now, okay, in prayer, you got to go on a walk and seven times around the property. Then you bind Satan. Then you pray for the peace of Jerusalem. He just cuts to the chase. He's like, just say, our daddy, our father. This to me has been the anchor of my walk with God. I grew up in a rather difficult house situation. In the natural, I was an accident baby. That is, I was unplanned. I was not anticipated. I sort of just arrived like an, a gift from heaven one day. So I didn't get to know my real, real father. But I grew up with my stepfather and it was, a, it was a very difficult journey, all the way from age three or so to age 18. It was a tough few years for me to interact with this stepfather. 
and we never quite got along. And so what happened is my perspective and image of God was really shot. And this is what happened to me. Here I am, little old me, and here's my dad. And whatever his character was like, it's as though that pointed to me the character of God. And we all do this. I did exactly the same. We see God often through the filter of our earthly parents. We don't do this necessarily consciously, but it's just that father, or let's say that mother, that parent-child relationship is the most needed thing in any individual's life. And what happens through that interaction, for better or for worse, a view of God is fashioned. I grew up with this monster, this very ill-equipped parent. And so my view of God was, I could not trust God. I can't communicate to God. I can't interact with God. My father and I had zero interaction. I'm not exaggerating, zero. I don't recall in my living memory sitting down with my stepfather, having any conversation of anything, not a car, not a fish, not a gun, nothing. Perhaps a good morning and a good night, and that's my interaction. So can you see how if you now come to God, often God is distorted because of the filter and the experiences of my earthly upbringing. Now, I'm talking on a negative level here. Some of you have had a positive father. He never spanked you. He never disciplined you. He never called you up. He never corrected you. And he always lavished you with gifts. So you have such a view even of your heavenly father. And now that filter is uh, so set. And you begin to walk with God and you discover God doesn't just show up with Ferraris and breakthroughs every single day like your earthly father did. And it damages for many of us our relationship with God. When an earthly father is too bad or too good and anything in between, it creates a filter. I had that filter. But the day that I got born again, that is the day that I was born from God and I received the right to be called a child of God. And the Spirit began to cry out in me, Abba, Father. This relationship here had to go the way of death. I had to deny that God is anything like my Father. I had to relearn who is Father and how does He operate. And I think that is what Jesus did in the ministry of those three years. If you come quickly to John 17, I want to show this to you. It's as though the Jewish people did not have a clear vision of who God was, who the Father was. And sometimes we don't have this clear vision of our Father. 
And Jesus came and he did away with this limited view of God, this narrow view of God, this Torah and trophy only view of God. And it's as though he, in John's gospel, wants to bring us into really who God is. If you look in John 17, Jesus is now praying. It's just a matter of hours before his crucifixion. And I want you to notice verse 6 in particular. Jesus says in his prayer to the Father, he says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. I have manifested your name. Well, everybody knew the name of God. They knew the name was Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey. They would not say that. They would not say, God is I am. They would just call him Hashem. That is the name. But here comes Jesus. He said, that name that you pray in and that God that's elusive and that wrong filter you have of God, I am here to, to, to tell you who he really is. And so in John's gospel, we have a redefinition of God. We have an interpretation of God. We, we have a disclosure really of who God is. And then John would write it down, Father, 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 Father. It's as though, here's the point. God is your dad. And until you come into that relationship, you're not going to be in the fullness. What did Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. Where's the end goal? The Father. You know what Christianity has even made it? We've made it about heaven. No one comes to heaven unless you come through Jesus, which kind of is true, but that's not what the Bible says. John is teaching us the Father, the Father, the Father is the end goal. And Jesus is the way to the Abba, to the Father. We've made it now about heaven. It's as though we've missed the point again. Just like the religious people of the day, they, they just missed the heart of God. Uh, go to John chapter 1. Are you there? All right, let's read. <laughs> John chapter 1, verse 18. In the prelude to this gospel of the Father, where John is really showing us what was the message of Jesus. He uh, includes this amazing statement. He says in uh, verse 18 that no one has ever seen God. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. So in a way you might say, why did Jesus come to earth? Typical Christian would say, to die on the cross. Ah, uh, yeah. Nice. Great answer. What else? Uh, to die for my sin. Amen. What else? Um, to make me holy. Uh, yes. What else? So that he could declare the name of God. Make manifest the nature of God. Here it says, we didn't know who God was. And then here comes the Son of God and he shows us who he is. He's Father. He's Abba. He's dead. That makes you kiddo, child, son. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. People ask me all day long, well, how do I know I'm walking in the Spirit? 
well, what's your view of God? Oh, he doesn't like me. Okay, you're not in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> well, how do I know I'm in the Holy Spirit? Well, what's your view of God? Oh, I love him. You're in the Spirit. You be like, I don't feel goosebumps. Do you love God? Are you tender towards God? Yes, I am. You're in the Spirit. No, but my friends, they jump and levitate. That's what's walking in the Spirit. <laughs> what's your prayer life like? I, I, I don't know. I just, I come before God like, oh God, I love you. You're in the Spirit. You with me? We don't know the Father. And Christ came and He forgave me of my sin. He came and He cleared my record. And he did all of these things. Amen. A hundred times over. But He came to just make me the kid of God again. John 1 verse 12. To be born of God so that I can be reauthorized and put in the position of a son. <laughs> and I can just say, Abba, Dad, Father, I trust you. Unlike the Pharisee who has interaction with his own spirituality and some imaginary God he's created through the filter of legalism, that tax collector more directly looks to God, like, God, have mercy on me, and there's a tenderness. And that's kind of what Jesus is teaching us. Just say, our Father. It's not just my Father. It's our Father. Ephesians 4, there's one hope, one baptism, one Lord, one God, and one Father over us all. So we then are brothers and sisters. We then are family. And we have one Father, one Abba. And again, I'll close with this. It speaks of tenderness. There is a tenderness in that phrase, our Father. And only the Holy Spirit can teach you that prayer. Jesus gave us a kind of a formula, our Father. And a lot of us, we learn it in school. We have to say it every day, our Father. I lived in a particular community long ago where that prayer had to be recited every day. Oh my gosh, what a drag. Our Father. Not sure why we did all these things. But it was so cold and lifeless. That's not what the, the Lord didn't give us some formula. I think He's bringing us back to this childlike simplicity. Instead of just a prayer being another kind of a formula that we dissect like a frog, I think the Lord was just saying, hey, you don't have to have a lot of words. You don't have to have it all figured out. Just say, Our Father.